cashless society nightmares. Why we haven't heard from aliens, which that first subject could have something to do with it. Uh, More when you die stuff. I know. Uh, I don't know why. It just came up. And magic mushrooms. Hmm. Got that and more all. Welcome to the Jay Sheldon Show. We are live on Facebook, and we are a live recorded show on Rumble.com and YouTube, and we will be that for the next uh, little while, but we will get back to being live on Rumble and YouTube soon, 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 okay? Soon. (laughs) It's Monday, isn't it? Yeah, it feels like a Monday. Anyway, we are also a podcast, and thank you for all those of you who are listening on our podcast. If you'd like to add us to your shelf of podcast streams, you can do that. Just go to wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, and look for The Jay Sheldon Show. Click subscribe or follow, and that's it. It's free, and that's all you got to do. All right, all we got to do now is get ourselves updated on our favorite little girl. Miko Update. Oh, yeah. Miko update. Bum, 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 you remember that? That was the theme from Green Acres. And you are so old if you remember that. <laughs> uh, yeah, she's doing great. As a matter of fact, uh, just uh, since since our last stream, uh, beginning, what, a day and a half ago, she suddenly went into this whole gastric not eating coming out of both ends stuff, and she's had that before. It's put her in hospital. We saw her through this one, and just earlier today for about lunchtime, uh, she decided to eat something. I teased her with a little cheese, which is her favorite thing. She hears the wrapper anywhere in the neighborhood, and she comes running. Uh, Anyway, so she ate that, and then we gave her a little bit of uh, wet food and some squash, and pumpkin, and uh, and she's back to eating. She ate a full dinner tonight. She took a walk, and uh, she's doing great. She's recovered. In fact, she's downstairs fighting with my significant other right now. So <laughs> uh, we had a little bit of a scare, but she's back. She's doing fine. No problems. And uh, thanks for those of you who uh, who always give us a like and a follow. And uh, a, hey, how's Miko doing? We try and keep you updated as as best we can. All right, let's uh, move right on into it tonight. Oh, by the way, also coming up later on at the end of the show, we're going to continue on with our book. We're doing Sherlock Holmes now, and uh, we have a new adventure, a new mystery tonight in the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. All right, I have talked briefly about this before and told you how stupid I thought it was. And it's come up again, these headlines just today in the world of Buzz. The link will be in our show notes down below. Not right now while we're live because Facebook's is are idiots. But it will be there as soon as we get off the air tonight. I'll update the description and then all of our links will be there. If you're watching on Rumble or YouTube, it's already there or listening on our podcast. Check out the links down below. Uh, this is a... What to some people would, uh, in the beginning, sound like, oh, how convenient, that's wonderful. To other people who, like me, like to say, and then what? You know, hey, here's a great idea. Uh, Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. But did you stop to think, and then what? Because that's what a lot of you people don't do out there. And that's where we get into trouble. This is from World of Buzz. Links in our show notes. Check out the whole story if you want. Government to impose cashless system at public hospitals. Malaysians are worried. Look, I know this is very Malaysian-centric, and I know i got listeners and viewers from around the world. However, this applies to you, too, if your government starts getting into this silliness. Keep an eye, and I'll tell you why coming up in a little bit. Here's the story, though. Um... According to health, a health circular, which was dated back in June 22nd, health ministry facilities like clinics, hospitals, will only accept cashless payments with debit cards, credit cards, and e-wallets starting from October 1st. No cash. You cannot pay in cash. A customer is only allowed to pay in cash 
if you do not have access to a cashless payment or you don't have a bank account. Hmm. Health Ministry Secretary General Dr. Harjit Singh said that by the end of the year, the end of this year, the ministry expects 95% of transactions at its clinics and hospitals to be cashless. While this may be seen by some as a good move, Malaysians are worried. And coming up, what some of them said. But here's the deal. You're not worried about the right thing. Be worried. Yes, please do. Be worried. Fight this ridiculous system, but not for the reasons you think. Some of the comments, before implementing such policy, be sure all your doctors and other hospital staff are efficient and competent enough to understand simple instructions. Make sure the system is up and running. Somebody else said the elderly will have a hard time, as most of them are not tech-savvy. How true is that? Some of them without family members to help them out. Uh, Really? Fully cashless? I was at the KK Mart earlier this month and couldn't even pay one ringgit via touch-and-go or do-it-now. KK Mart is like a 7-Eleven. Um, here's another comment. Malaysians, definitely, there's Miko, definitely not ready to go cashless. The customer service in relation to any dispute will take light years, if you're lucky, in order to settle. It uh, still should be given as an option and not forced on them, at least until the banks and the merchants are all confident of rectifying all issues within minutes upon complaints. Uh, The next time you're standing in queue, checking out anywhere, pay attention to how sometimes those paying via cashless methods usually will take much longer for them to pay because of how inefficient the current system is, whether it's the approval system or the internet speed of the merchants. Also another one here, the elderly, like my parents, do not have credit cards. Such an inconvenience. I myself do not have a credit card. I have not had a credit card in over 20-some-odd years. I pay by debit card or I pay by cash. If I don't have the cash, I don't buy it. While going cashless, the article says, may be a way to reduce tax evasion and fraud, (laughs) maybe. Uh, Are we as a society ready to embrace and transition into a cashless society? Well, I'm telling you, don't do it, but I think you're off the mark on the reasons why. People are complaining because the system's not efficient. It'll take forever for disputes to get settled. That's not where I'm thinking on this. What happens? Hear me out. What happens if you are a person who is opposed to the current government, whoever's in charge? I'm not saying I am or I'm not. I'm just saying, suppose you are a person who is vehemently opposed to what's happening in the government and you're very vocal about it. And all of your money, the only way you can pay for something is through a cashless system. And the government has control over that system. And suddenly, your social credit score, shall we call it, is gone. You're not allowed to pay for things because they've tagged your account. You think it can't happen? Mm-mm-mm. Oh, how wrong you would be. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I know, I'm sure that you have heard about China's social credit score. It is a dystopian nightmare. It is unbelievable. And if you want to know more about it, you check out this link in our show notes tonight. It's from the New York Post. It's an article called China's China's Social Credit System is a Dystopian Nightmare. Imagine calling a friend. Only instead of hearing a ringtone, you hear a police siren. And then a voice intoning, Be careful in your dealings with this person. Would that put a damper on your relationship? It's supposed to. 
Welcome to life in China's social credit system, where a low score can ruin your life in more ways than one. Now, look, don't start saying this could never happen here. It's beginning to happen in places other than just China, and we all know how bad, not the Chinese people, the CCP is, how awful, how awful the Chinese Communist Party is. Say you arrive at Beijing Airport, intending to catch a flight to Canton, 1,200 miles south. Clerk at the ticket counter turns you away because you don't, you guessed it, have a good enough social credit score. Your score is too low. You can't fly. If you think I'm joking around about this, there was a protest in China. And you know, you're not allowed. Some people were headed to the protest, and on their way there, their little app on their phone suddenly turned red, and they were not allowed to either travel or complete to get to their destination, which is where they were scheduled to have the protest. This is the kind of control the CCP has and is currently doing to its citizens. I know it's China, and I know what a dystopian nightmare China is, the Chinese Communist Party. But if you think this can't happen in your country, uh, you are sorely mistaken. And wherever you may be, the U.S., the U.K., Australia, New Zealand, I don't have to explain that to you because of that idiot you have in charge down there. Malaysia, Thailand, wherever it might be. I could see this going on in Singapore really easily. Read these articles, folks. You want to get woken up about how these things work? It is scary stuff. And these are the reasons why I am completely against a cashless society for anything. We still have to be able to use cash and accept cash for all of our transactions, and especially things like medical service. All of a sudden, you show up to have an important operation or a test or something, and you find out your credit score is no longer good enough. You can't have the operation. You think I'm messing around here? We're, whoops, <laughs> we're that close. We're that close. And then what? Please use that phrase, okay? All right. You ready for some wacky weird stuff? It's from Big Think, so you know this is going to be a strange one. Dark forest theory. A terrifying explanation of why we have yet to hear from aliens. The Fermix Paradox asks us, where are all the aliens? If, as a lot of people believe, especially when you saw the pictures from the James Webb Telescope, there are that many galaxies in just a small slice of the sky visible. People believe the galaxies should be full of other life forms. So why haven't they ever visited or officially contacted us? The Milky Way, 200 billion stars, perhaps 100 billion planets... If even a small fraction of those have life on it, even a small fraction, and even if only a pathetic scattering of those planets had life forms which became intelligent, our galaxy should be teeming with alien civilizations, some of whom would either be looking for us or discoverable for at least a little while. The number of alien civilizations in the galaxy should have, can be determined by an equation. It's the Drake equation, and that turns uh, the above factors into variables. When you plug them into the formula, you'll find there should be at least 20 civilizations in our cosmic neighborhood. That makes the fact that we've yet to find any other life in the cosmos shocking when you think about it. There's a video attached to this article, which I encourage you to read and watch, but the, uh, the Fermi paradox, the discord between how many advanced civilizations ought to be in space and the lack of any real evidence 
is what is known as the Fermi paradox. It's led to dozens of hypotheses, potential solutions over the last few decades. Many of those aim at one of the variables in the Drake equation to try to make the supposed number of civilizations lower so it's more reasonable that we haven't met anybody yet. Some propose that life starting at all is rare. Others suggest that development of intelligence is the bottleneck. Others still posit that most civilizations would have lived for a short time before blowing themselves up, or conversely, never even managing to invent the radio, let alone space or time travel. The Dark Forest Solution explains why we haven't heard from them, uh, positing that they're purposely keeping quiet. Now, this gets scary. The reason is laid out best in the science fiction novel The Dark Forest by Liu Shijin. The plot of the book, second in a series, concentrates on how to best interact with potential hostile alien life. In the novel, this is the argument they make. All life desires to stay alive. Seems obvious. There is no way to know if other life forms can or will destroy you if given a chance. Lacking assurances, the safest option for any species would be to annihilate other life forms before they have a chance to annihilate you. Weird, huh? Since all other life forms in the novel are risk-adverse and willing to do anything to save themselves, contact of any kind is considered too dangerous. Almost assuredly would lead to the contacted race wiping out whoever was foolish enough to give away their location. And here we sit sending out radio beams, hello, we're here, you know, Horton hears a who stuff. Uh, most advanced civilizations, they suppose, are actually attempting to hide. They don't want to contact us. And frankly, the way things are going lately around this planet, you guys probably have a good point. The universe, this is from the novel, and it's explained. The universe is a dark forest. Every civilization is an armed hunter, stalking through the trees like a ghost gently pushing aside branches that block the path, trying to tread without sound. Even breathing is done with care. The hunter has to be careful because everywhere in the forest are stealthy hunters like him. If he finds another life, another hunter, angel, or demon, a delicate infant or a tottering old man, a fairy or a demigod, there is only one thing he can do open fire and eliminate them. Whoa. That's this guy's theory about why we haven't been contacted, even though we've tried, and why maybe we shouldn't be sending out signals saying, hello, we're here. And there's more in this article. I encourage you to go check it out and read it and uh, find out more about this weird thing. It's from BigThink.com. Links in our show notes down below or off to the side, wherever that might be. But check it out. It is a very, very, very cool, uh, cool book. Cool article. All right. So the aliens come. They decide to kill you. And now you're dead. Now what do you do? I don't know where this fascination, it's not a fascination of mine. I just, these things pop up on my timeline and I think I got to share that on my show. So this is a short one. It's from Susan Tutu. Susan, we love you to death out there. Thank you so much, Susan. It's great to have you as a friend. It's a very short little wordy meme thing, but it's, it's quite cool. And <laughs> it's really relative to some stuff, some crap that's going on right now. Not only in this country, but quite a few countries. And uh, let me I'll just share this. Link's in our show notes if you want to share it also. Please do. It's a public post, but it's, it's great. When you die, God isn't going to ask you about somebody else. He won't ask you about the two men down the street who got married. He won't ask you about the girl who had an abortion. He won't ask you about the atheist that lives on the corner. He won't ask you about the woman who feels more comfortable as a man. 
he will ask you how you loved those people as he called you to do. And some of you didn't. Hmm. Well said. Again, I've told you before, I'm an agnostic, bordering on atheist. Uh, But if you are a believer, some wise words there from Susan. Thank you very much for that. All right. And we talked about this on a previous show because there was an article about uh, being cremated and having your ashes put into some sort of composting pit. Uh, I don't know, whatever. It was a cool article. I shared it out there. And I explained to you that one of my dreams would be to be cremated and stuck in a firework, a big chrysanthemum, a giant chrysanthemum firework, and shot up into the sky. There's companies that do it. I'm not kidding. Uh, Anyway, this pops up from Terry uh, Ravuda. Public post, so we're not sharing anything private. This is all public. Anybody can see it. And it is the, it, there's stuff in here even I didn't know, and I thought I knew just about everything. Links in our show notes if you want to check it out. When you are no more, when your body is done, how are you going to be disposed? This is something we started asking in a couple of streams ago. But here's a list, and this isn't everything, but these are some of the options that you can have done with your body. Many of these are illegal in some places, and a few have only reportedly been done a few times ever in history. But I know the writing is very small, so if you're watching on the video, you you likely can't see it. But go to the link in our show notes and check this out. Because, I mean, obviously internment, being buried in the ground, is one of the most obvious ones. Cremation, burial at sea, Composting is the one we covered in our previous show. A body farm. They actually will take your body and they lay it out there in nature and research is done on how many bugs are attracted to you, how long it takes you to decompose. Some of it is used in research for law enforcement when they find bodies out, you know, murder victims, things like that, or suicide victims or natural death causes. Uh, it helps to, uh, the research helps in their investigations. But yeah, a body farm is an option. Uh, sky burial? Mm. Space burial sounds expensive, but that's rather cool. Uh, electroplating, I don't want to know about. Uh, entombment, of course, you can put it in a tomb. Uh, alkaline hydrolysis? Yeah, Okay. Now, here's one that, you know, a lot of people have heard about, but I don't think many people can afford to do it, and that is uh, crypto preservation. Uh, I'm sorry, cryo preservation, which is where basically you're frozen, or perhaps just your head is frozen, which is very freaky. But look at this list. Tax... No, no, this is not an option. Please tell me this is not an option. Taxidermy? Oh, yeah, this is Uncle Fred over in the corner in the chair. That's it. We had him stuffed. <laughs> you have to be kidding me. <laughs> I'm sure that's one of the one that either hasn't been done very often in history or is illegal in most places. Uh, the list goes on. You can see here there's just a ton of these things. They're all, it's insane how many ways there are to get rid of you. And that is, of course, if your religion permits that. Some people's religion does not permit them to do anything other than a prescribed method of getting rid of your body and how long you have to do that, too, in fact. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's weird. All right, one more story, and then we're going to get on to our book. This is a really cool one. It has nothing to do with magic mushrooms. It is about mushrooms that are magic, but not magic mushrooms, okay? I found this. It is from ugerconner.xyz, which is the strangest URL I've ever seen. But this is an amethyst mushroom. Wait till you see this. Look at that. Again, if you're listening on the podcast, sorry, it's a visual thing, but you you really got to check out this link. It's the last link in our show notes. In 1942, amethyst mushrooms... I'll never pronounce their official scientific names. Let me give it a try. Eleomyxa cherifera 
was found. In order to uh, dismissal ascospores, like a glowing star, the fungi's fruiting structure, structure splits open. It's totally like a galaxy hidden in the mushroom. Look at that. This is not a Photoshop. This is an actual photo of these mushrooms. They can be seen in big logs or rostrum that are encrusted with lichen and leaf-like hepatics. Look at that. This looks like some picture from the James Webb Telescope. This is incredible. How beautiful are these? A scientist named Sarah Lloyd researched and photographed the mushrooms. She spent a lot of time doing that. She found some of these in her place and felt interested and decided to find out all the mushrooms around everywhere. She has a big collection of these, more than a 1,700 fungi. And this, look at these other, there's more pictures of this amazing mushroom. Look at that. There's a close-up. That is insane. Look at that. It doesn't even look like a mushroom, really. And then as you go there, you can see that some that are starting to break apart where they blow their spores out to uh, procreate. Man, look at that. The colors alone, it's purples and greens and rainbow colors in there. And it it's actually looks like it sparkles. And then look here, there's one that's developed or it's turned into more of a, uh, like a mushroom cap. Absolutely incredible. Look at that. What a world we live in, huh? What a world. What a world, what a world. <laughs> this is amazing. Absolutely amazing. You got to check it out. Do check out the link in our show notes tonight. It's the last one down before all the promotional stuff is in there. Uh, you can read the whole article and check out these pictures. You got you to gotta see it. It's absolutely amazing. Wow. Ryan. Ryan says, I want to be frozen so I can live my life as seen in Futurama. <laughs> you want a one-eyed girlfriend in the future. Yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can imagine. <laughs> uh, all right, if you say so. <laughs> Let's, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm not so sure that would be the path I would pick. I'm still going for the firework. Cremate me. You can't put all my ashes because there'll be too many of them, but take a piece, good solid chunk, stick it in one of them giant chrysanthemum fireworks, and shoot me up in the sky. That's good enough for me. <laughs> okay, so if I die tomorrow, I'm not planning on it, but just in case, you never know. Uh, that's my final instructions, okay? Cremate me, stick me in a firework, shoot me up in the sky. A big one, too, one of those big chrysanthemum ball fireworks. White's fine. I, I don't need a color. Just white is fine. Okay. You ready for Sherlock Holmes? I hope so, because that's what we're doing now. Uh, we read books on this show. You know that if you are a regular listener. And uh, we have been doing Sherlock Holmes. You'll find them all at the Gutenberg Project, gutenberg.org. The link is in our show notes. And uh, you can find them. They're all free. They're all in the public domain. And the, the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes we've been reading, each chapter is a new adventure. It's all written by his companion, Dr. Watson. And uh, we just finished The Blue Carbuncle, and now this one, which apparently has another bird involved in the case. It's The Adventure of the Speckled Band. On glancing over my notes of the 70-odd cases which I've had during the last eight years studying the methods of my friend Sherlock Holmes, I find many tragic, some comic, a large number merely strange, but none commonplace. For, working as he did rather for the love of his art than for the acquirement of wealth, he refused to associate himself with any investigation which did not lend itself towards the unusual, or even the fantastic. Of all these varied cases, however, I cannot recall any which presented more singular features than that which was associated with the well-known Surrey family of the Roylots of Stoke Moran. 
The events in question occurred in the early days of my association with Mr. Holmes, when we were sharing rooms as bachelors in Banker Street. It is possible that I might have placed them upon record before, but a promise of a secrecy was made at the time, from which I have only been freed during the last month by the untimely death of the lady to whom the pledge was given. It is perhaps as well that the facts should now come to light, for I have reason to know that there are widespread rumors as to the death of Dr. Grimsby Roylott, which led to make the matter even more terrible than the truth. It was early in the April of 83 when I woke up one morning to find Sherlock Holmes standing, fully dressed, by the side of my bed. He was a late riser as a rule, and as the clock on the mantelpiece showed me it was only a quarter past seven, I blinked up at him in some surprise, perhaps just a little resentment, for I was myself regular in my habits. "'Very sorry to knock you up, Watson,' said he. "'But it's the common lot this morning. "'Mrs. Hudson has been knocked up, and she retorted upon me, and I upon you. "'What is it, then? A fire? No, a client. "'It seems a young lady has arrived in a considerable state of excitement, "'who insists upon seeing me. "'She's waiting now in the sitting-room. "'Now, when young ladies wander about the metropolis at this hour of the morning, and knock sleepy people out of their beds, I presume it's something very pressing which they have to communicate. Should it prove to be an interesting case, you would, I'm sure, wish to follow it from the onset. I thought at any rate that I should call you and give you the chance. My dear fellow, I wouldn't miss it for anything. I'd no keener pleasure than following Holmes in his professional investigations, and in admiring the rapid deductions as swift as institutions, and yet always founded on a logical basis in which he unraveled the problems which were submitted to him. I rapidly threw on my clothes and was ready in a few minutes to accompany my friend down to the sitting-room. A lady dressed in black and heavily veiled, who'd been sitting in the window, rose as we entered. "'Good morning, madam,' said Holmes cheerily. My name is Sherlock Holmes. This is my intimate friend and associate, Dr. Watson, before whom you can speak as freely as before myself. Ha! I'm glad to see that Mrs. Hudson has had the good sense to light a fire. Pray, draw up to it, and I shall order you a cup of hot coffee, for I observe that you're shivering. It is not cold that makes me shiver, said the woman, in a low voice, changing her seat as requested. What, then? It is fear, Mr. Holmes. It is terror. She raised her veil as she spoke, and we could see that she was indeed in a pitiful state of agitation, her face all drawn and gray with restless, frightened eyes, like those of some hunted animal. Her features and figure were of those of a woman of thirty, but her hair was shot with premature gray, and her expression was weary and haggard. Sherlock Holmes ran her over with one of his quick, all-comprehensive glances. "'You must not fear,' said he, soothingly, bending forward and patting her forearm. "'We shall soon set matters right, I have no doubt. You've come in by train this morning, I see.' "'You know me, then?' "'No, but I observe the second half of a return ticket in the palm of your left glove.' You must have started early, and yet you had a good drive in a dog cart along heavy roads before you reached the station. The woman gave a violent start and stared in bewilderment at my companion. There is no mystery, my dear madam, said he, smiling. The left arm of your jacket is spattered with mud in no less than seven places. The marks are perfectly fresh. There's no vehicle save a dog cart which throws up mud that way, and... Only when you sit on the left-hand side of the driver. Whatever your reasons be, you are perfectly correct, she said. I started home before six, reached Leatherhead at twenty past, and came in by the first train to Waterloo Street. Sir, I can't stand this strain any longer. I shall go mad if it continues. 
I have no one to turn to, none save only one who cares for me, and he, poor fellow, can be of little aid. I've heard of you, Mr. Holmes. I've heard of you from Mrs. Farintosh, whom you helped in the hour of her sore need. It was from her that I had your address. Oh, sir, do you not think that you could help me too, and at least throw a little light into the dense darkness which surrounds me? At present, it is out of my power to reward you for your services, but in a month or six weeks, I shall be married in control of my own income. Then at least you shall not find me ungrateful. Mr. Holmes turned to his desk, and unlocking it, drew out a small case book, which he consulted. Farintosh, said he. Ah, yes, I recall the case. It was uh, concerned an opal tiara. I think it was before your time, Watson. I can only say, madam, that I shall be happy to devote the same care to your case as I did to that friend of yours. As to reward, my profession is its own reward. But you are at liberty to defray whatever expenses I may be put to, and all that time, in whatever time, suits you best. And, and now I beg that you will lay before us everything that may help us in forming an opinion on the matter. Alas, replied our visitor, the very horror of my situation lies in the fact that my fears are so vague. My suspicions depend so entirely upon small points, which might seem trivial to another, that even he to whom of all others I have a right to look for help and advice looks upon all that I tell him about it as the fancies of a nervous woman. He does not say so, but I can read it from his soothing answers and averted eyes. But I've learned, Mr. Holmes, that you can see deeply into the manifold wickedness of the human heart. You may advise me how to walk amid the dangers which encompass me. I am all attention, madam. My name is Helen Stoner. I'm living with my stepfather, who is the last survivor of one of the oldest Saxon families in England, the Roylots of Stoke Moran, on the western border of Surrey. Holmes nodded his head. The name is familiar to me, said he. The family was at one time among the richest in England. The estates extended over the borders into Berkshire in the north and the Hampshire in the west. In the last century, however, four successive heirs were of a dissolute and wasteful deposition. The family ruin was eventually completed by a gambler in the days of the Regency. Nothing was left save a few acres of ground and the 200-year-old house, which itself crushed under the heavy mortgage. The last squire dragged out his existence there, living in the horrible life of an aristocratic pauper. But his only son, my stepfather, seeing that he must adapt himself to the new conditions, obtained an advance from a relative which enabled him to take a medical degree, went out to Calcutta, where, by his professional skill and his force of character, he established a large practice. In a fit of anger, however, Caused by some robberies which had been perpetrated in the house, he beat his native butler to death, narrowly escaped a capital sentence. As it was, he suffered a long term of imprisonment, and afterwards returned to England a morose and disappointed man. When Dr. Roy Lott was in India, he married my mother, Mrs. Stoner, the young widow of Major General Stoner of the Bengal Artillery. My sister Julia and I were twins, and we were only two years old at the time of my mother's remarriage. She had a considerable sum of money, not less than a thousand pound a year, and this she bequeathed to Dr. Roylott entirely while we resided with him, with the provision that a certain sum should be allowed each of us in the event of our marriage. Shortly after our return to England, my mother died. She was killed eight years ago in a railway accident near Crewe. Dr. Roylott then abandoned his attempts to establish himself in practice in London and took us to live with him in the old ancestral house at Stoke Moran. The money which my mother had left was enough for all our wants, and 
there seemed to be no obstacles to our happiness. But a terrible change came over our stepfather about this time. Instead of making friends and exchanging visits with our neighbors, who had at first been overjoyed to see a roylot of Stoke Moran back in the old family seat, he shut himself up in his house, seldom came out save to indulge in ferocious quarrels with whoever might cross his path. Violence of temper approaching to mania has been hereditary in the men in the family, and in my stepfather's case it had, I believe, been intensified by his long residence in the tropics. A series of disgraceful, disgraceful brawls took place, two of which ended in police court, until at last he became the terror of the village, and the folks would fly at his approach. For he's a man of immense strength, and absolutely uncontrollable in his anger. Well, last week he hurled the local blacksmith over a parapet into a stream, and it was only by paying over all the money which I could gather together that I was able to avert another public exposure. He had no friends at all save the wandering gypsies, and he would give these vagabonds leave to encamp upon the few acres of bramble-covered land which represented the family estate, and he would accept in return the hospitality of their tents, wandering away with them sometimes for weeks on end. He has a passion also for Indian animals, which are sent over to him by a correspondent. And he has at this moment a cheetah and a baboon, which wander freely over the grounds, and are feared by the villagers almost as much as their master. You can imagine, from what I say, that my poor sister Julia and I had no great pleasure in our lives. No servant would stay with us, and for a long time we did all the work of the house. She was but thirty at the time of her death, and yet her hair had already begun to whiten, even as mine has. Your sister is dead, then? She died just two years ago, and it is of her death that I wish to speak to you. You can understand that living the life which I've described, we were likely, little likely, to see anyone our own age and position. We had, however, my aunt, my mother's maiden sister, Mrs. Honoria Westfall, who lives near Harrow, and we were occasionally allowed to pay short visits to this lady's house. Julia went there at Christmas two years ago, met a half-pay major of Marines to whom she became engaged. My stepfather learned of the engagement when my sister returned and offered no objection to the marriage. But within a fortnight of the day which had been fixed for the wedding, the terrible event occurred which has deprived me of my only companion. Well, Sherlock Holmes had been leaning back in his chair with his eyes closed, his head sunk in a cushion. But he half opened his lids now and glanced across at our visitor. Pray, be precise to the details, said he. It is easy for me to be so, for every event of that dreadful time is seared into my memory. The manor house is, as I have already said, very old, and only one wing is now inhabited. The bedroom in this wing are on the ground floor, sitting rooms being in the central block of the buildings. Of these bedrooms, the first is Dr. Roylott's, the second is my sister's, and the third my own. There's no communication between them, but they all open out into the same corridor. Do I make myself plain? Perfectly so. The windows of the three rooms open out upon the lawn. That fatal night, Dr. Roylott had gone to his room early, although we knew he hadn't retired to rest, for my sister was troubled by the smell of the strong Indian cigars, which was, was his custom to smoke. She left her room, therefore, came into mine, where she sat for some time, chatting about her approaching wedding. At eleven o'clock she rose to leave me, but she paused at the door and looked back. "'Tell me, Helen,' said she, have you ever heard anyone whistle in the dead of the night? Never, said I. I suppose that you could not 
possibly whistle yourself in your sleep? No, certainly not. But why? Because the last few nights, I have always, about three in the morning, heard a low, clear whistle. I am a light sleeper, and it awakened me. I cannot tell you where it came from, perhaps from the next room, perhaps from the lawn. I, I thought that I would just ask whether you'd heard it. No, I have not. It much must be those wretched gypsies in the plantation. Ah, very likely. And yet, if it were on the lawn, I wonder that you didn't hear it also. Ah, but I sleep more heavily than you. Well, it's of no great consequence at any rate. She smiled back at me, closed my door, and a few moments later, I heard her key turn in the lock. Indeed, said Holmes. Was it your custom always to lock yourselves in at night? Always. And why? I think that I mentioned to you that the doctor kept a cheetah and a baboon. We had no feeling of security unless our doors were locked. Quite so. Proceed with your statement. I couldn't sleep that night. A vague feeling of impending misfortune impressed me. My sister and I, you will recollect, are twins, and you know how subtle are the links which bind two souls which are so closely allied. It was a wild night. The wind was howling outside, the rain beating and splashing against the windows. Suddenly, amidst all the hubbub of the gale, there burst forth the wild scream of a terrified woman. I knew that it was my sister's voice. I sprang from my bed, wrapped a shawl around me, and rushed out into the corridor. A few moments later, a clanging sound, as if a mass of metal had fallen. As I ran down the passage, my sister's door was unlocked and revolving slowly upon its hinges. I stared at it, horror-stricken, not knowing what was about to issue from it. By the light of the corridor lamp, I saw my sister appearing at the opening, her face blanched with terror, her hands groping for help, her whole figure swaying to and fro like that of a drunkard. I ran to her and threw my arms around her, but at that moment her knees seemed to give way and she fell to the ground. She writhed as one who is in terrible pain and her limbs were dreadfully convulsed. At first I thought she'd not recognized me, but as I bent over she suddenly shrieked out in a voice which I shall never forget. Oh my God, Helen! It was the band! The speckled band! It was something else which she would fain have said, and she stabbed with her finger into the air in the direction of the doctor's room but a fresh convulsion seized her and choked her words. I rushed out, calling loudly for my stepfather. I met him fastening, hastening from his room in his dressing gown. When he reached my sister's aid, she was unconscious, and though he poured brandy down her throat and sent for medical aid from the village, all efforts were in vain, for she slowly sank and died without having recovered her consciousness. Such was the dreadful end of my beloved sister. One moment, said Holmes. Are you sure about this whistle and metallic sound? Could you swear to it? That was what the county coroner asked me about at the inquiry. It is my strong impression that I heard it, and yet... Among the crash of the gale and the creaking of an old house, I might possibly have been deceived. Was your sister dressed? No, she was in her nightdress. In her right hand was found the charred stump of a match, and in her left a matchbox, showing that she had struck a light and looked around her when the alarm took place. That is important. And what conclusions did the coroner come to? Well, he investigated the case with great care, for Dr. Roylott's conduct had long been notorious in the county, but he was unable to find any satisfactory cause of death. 
My evidence showed that the door had been fastened upon the inner side, and the windows were blocked by old-fashioned shutters with broad iron bars, which were secured every night. The walls, carefully sounded, shown to be quite solid all round, and the flooring was also thoroughly examined, with the same result. Chimneys wide, but barred up by four large staples. It is certain, therefore, that my sister was quite alone when she met her end. Besides, there were no marks of any violence on her. What about poison? The doctor examined her for it, but without success. What do you think that this unfortunate lady died of then? It is my belief that she died of pure fear and nervous shock. Though what it was that frightened her, I cannot imagine. And that's where we'll end it for tonight. We'll pick it up again, find out what Sherlock can do with this misadventure in our next stream on Wednesday night. Yeah, cool. All right, that's it for us. Thanks so much for listening. Please do like, subscribe, follow, and check out our podcast too, which is the audio part of our show. You'll find that across all podcast platforms. Just give a search for The Jay Sheldon Show and click follow and subscribe. And that's it. We're out of here. I'll see you again Wednesday. Until then, have a great rest of your week. Good night, everybody. Ha, ha, ha.